I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. This is our ninth Econofact Chats episode that features a panel of distinguished economic journalists. I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast Benjamin Applebaum of the New York Times, Larry Edelman of the Boston Globe, Scott Horsley of NPR, and Heather Long of the Washington Post. We last spoke in June. Today I'll ask our panelists about some ongoing issues discussed in previous podcasts, notably the fight against inflation and the likelihood of a recession. I'll also want to get their opinions on some issues that have been in the news recently, like the government shutdown, which we avoided with stopgap measure, the UAW strike and what that might imply about the union movement, and the Amazon antitrust case, and whether that foreshadows a new aggressive stance towards market-dominating businesses. Also, all four of our panelists have recently written about housing, a topic that affects many Americans, and I look forward to their insights on this. Benjamin, Scott, Larry, and Heather, welcome once more to Econofact Chats. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thank you, Michael. So let's start out with the piece of news that dominated this weekend, the fact that we avoided a government shutdown, but only through a stopgap measure that lasts for 45 days, which takes us till mid-November or so. When this podcast is being posted, it'll be a little more than a week since the passing of that stopgap measure. What does this fight over spending and the stopgap measure and all the politics and economics that goes around it, what does it tell us about the functioning of government? Scott? Well, you uh, the, the government is still functioning, uh, just barely. Um, it, it's a good thing that they didn't shut down the government. Government shutdowns are you know, fiscally stupid and, and disruptive and probably not terrible for the broader economy, but just just uh, just dumb policy making. So it's, it's a good thing that they avoided that. And it's and it's particularly good uh, this week. It, uh, you know, we're we're teed up here as we record this for the for the jobs numbers. And those would not have come out uh, had the had the Labor Department and the Bureau of Labor Statistics been been shuttered. Uh, and it's particularly difficult for the Federal Reserve to do its job and try to engineer a soft landing if they are flying blind and, and all the other people who depend on those those government statistics. So it's, it's, it's certainly a good thing. It's it's uh, doesn't instill a whole lot of confidence that the reprieve came really almost at the 11th hour and, and only for about six weeks. So with the statistics, that's an example of where ignorance is not bliss, I guess. <laughs> Michael, I would I would say that we shouldn't take too much um, good news away from the fact that they reached a reached an agreement. Uh, like you said, it only takes us through for about forty five days. More importantly, this this fighting is going to go on as long as the Republican Party is at war with itself. As long as this small but pivotal faction 
uh, from the right can block legislation, nothing of any consequence is going to get done. And that's just bad news for the economy because there's so many things that need to be done. The administration was able to squeak through some stuff through the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. Uh, but now, you know, that kind of big picture policymaking is, is going to grind to a halt again. And look, there are plenty of problems that need to be dealt with, uh, including climate change and, uh, you know, the border where, uh, you know, immigration is just a mess as a result of both parties' failures to really do any comprehensive uh, immigration reform. Well, we'll revisit this again um, when we have our next panel. Uh, we'll see what happens at that time. We may also revisit inflation, or maybe not. The latest inflation rate was 3.7% for August, which was well below its peak of over 9% last summer. The unemployment rate in August was 3.8%. Many economists predicted that we could not have brought down inflation by over five percentage points without causing a recession and a big rise in unemployment. So have we achieved the much desired soft landing and can we expect this Goldilocks outcome, not too hot, not too cold, to last? I'll take a stab at it first. I call it the yes, yes but economy. Um, at the in the moment, and you know, it does seem more likely that a soft landing is achievable, and you can imagine various professors and economics classes 10, 20 years down the road really pointing to this as some sort of miracle that we were able to avert a recession and we were able to bring uh, inflation back down. But in the but part, for those of us who are about to live through the next six to twelve months. Um, you know, I hate to use the term slow session. We really need better terms in economics. But you know, more than likely, the Fed's predicting this and a lot of private economists predicting whether or not we get an actual recession, growth is going to slow. You know, we're probably not going to be at 2% anymore in the next few months. Maybe it falls more to a 1% growth. This start probably starts to feel a lot more like what we saw late 2015, early 2016. And, you know, one, slowing from 2% to 1% doesn't feel great. You're already starting to see a lot of examples in the real world of what, what I would call wait and see mode. So there's positions that are open, but companies are being much more slow at hiring and very picky and selective. A lot of companies are giving a sort of belt tightening for the next few months message. And again, it doesn't mean something's like falling off a cliff, but that type of environment after what we've seen for the past uh, two years is people are going to feel it. It's noticeably different. It's a noticeable downgrade. Yeah, I've, I've always thought that image of a soft landing is a little weird because it implies that there's like an end point and then things stop. And in fact, things keep going, right? So we've avoided a recession so far. That's a real victory. There was concern that the Fed's campaign would send the economy down fairly precipitously or into a fairly quick downturn. That didn't happen. Uh, but, you know, there is obviously still risk going forward. It's a constant balancing act uh, for policy. I think there's still the government is still playing an outsized role in the economy. Uh, there's still leftover fiscal impetus. There's still, you know, significant. Uh, the Fed could obviously squeeze tighter if it wants to. So, you know, the government remains, um, you know, in a, in a position that I think is probably going to be difficult to sustain. And so we're not yet back to some equilibrium in which we can feel confident that this episode has ended. Uh, and, and I think it's uncertain how it's going to play out. Um, but the fact that we've avoided a recession thus far is in and of itself a victory. Uh, you know, it's if you think about it, the Fed has been able to slow inflation 
uh, very substantially without causing a major uptick in unemployment. And that was the easy part. <laughs> now comes the hard part, and that is how to time it. What's going to be the, the, the new level of interest rates going forward on a real basis, you know, adjusted for inflation? And these are very difficult questions, and that's where it's going to be very hard for the Fed I think going forward is exactly, you know, do they make this rate cut, another rate hike, uh, either in November or December, or do they still pause? And if they still pause, when do they start to cut next year? And uh, it's just not clear yet, uh, you know, how that is going to play out. So good news so far. And, you know, the second half of the football game still has to be played. Well, following up on what you said, Larry, and also what Benjamin said, the Federal Reserve did pause its aggressive policy of raising interest rates at its last meeting in September, but at the Jackson Hole meeting in August, Chairman Powell said that it's the Fed's role to bring inflation down to 2% and that the Fed is committed to this goal. Is that a wise choice? We had a recent podcast with Peter Blair Henry, who's now at Stanford, but had been the dean of the Stern School of Business at NYU, and he has a recent research paper with Anusha Cherry where they talk about the difficulty of bringing down moderate inflation. Will the cost of an additional decrease in inflation by 1.7 percentage points come at the cost of a spike in unemployment? Well, that's the, the billion dollar question, I guess. As, as Benjamin said, we've managed to avoid a, a recession so far, and that's more than lots of forecasters uh, thought we could do. As Jerome Powell said, uh, uh, forecasters are a humble bunch and they've got a lot to be humble about. So I'm not going to venture any, any guesses to whether you can get that extra, you know, from 3.7 down to two without a spike in unemployment. So far, so good. Uh, Michael Barr gave a, gave a talk last week in which he said it's, it's less important whether they hike in November or December than, the, than how long they, they leave rates elevated. And the markets seem to finally begin to believe the Fed when they say we're going to leave them elevated for a while. Um, you know, for a long time, the market seemed to think that the Fed was going to hit this, hit this peak, and then almost immediately turn around and start cutting rates. And and uh, Powell and his colleagues have been pretty consistent in saying, no, we expect this to be a bit of a slog, and we think we think rates are going to be stay elevated for a while. And if they do, that certainly leaves more room for something around the economy to to break and and tip us over into a recession. Even if we do go into recession, though, it's probably going to be fairly mild. And so the difference between, you know, plus 1% GDP growth or minus 1% may not be, whether technically we're in a recession or not, it's going to feel slow. It's not going to feel great, but it's probably not going to feel terrible either. It's not going to be a, a, a crippling recession. I mean, I, one thing I'd say is that the political consequences of a recession may be greater than the economic consequences. Uh, if we go into a downturn next year, it has the potential to decide who the next president will be, uh, even if, you know, that, that difference between a, a couple points below zero and a couple points above zero can, can be uh, important in that sense. But, you know, more broadly, the question you asked about the inflation rate, and whether it's worth getting down to two, I think is a really interesting one, because I think that there's very compelling arguments to be made that 2% was a mistake as a target, that it's too low. Uh, and that if we were starting over and setting a target, we would not set it at two. But the problem is that we did. Uh, and there are also compelling arguments to be made that the Fed's credibility is invested in reaching the target that it set. And that if it fails to do so, uh, it will be more difficult for the Fed to maintain control of inflation going forward. 
that's a hard one because it doesn't, if you sort of play that out, it becomes really difficult to figure out when, if ever, one could move to a different target than 2%. Uh, and so it becomes an argument for, you know, staying with a mistake because it, it's hard to know when to abandon it. Um, but I don't think it would be without cost. So I, I think it's a really difficult dilemma uh, that the Fed is confronting. I'll just add that I'm old enough to remember and to have been at the Fed press conferences in sort of 2018, 2019. I know many others on this recording were as well when the Fed chair was asked why inflation was too low from the target. And he would have to, this was Powell and, and Yellen before him, you know, stress that it was a symmetric target. You know, so it was okay if you were a little bit below for a while or a decade. So, um, you know, I, I obviously, as Benjamin was outlining, and it's been very clear that the Fed wants to get near 2%, but I think it's going to be a lot more interesting how close near is in the next 12 months. And looking at something like core PCE and the latest report, if you look at the past three months, you know, we're pretty much at 2.2%, which looks pretty good and everyone would be very comfortable with. So I think, uh, I think they have room to be a lot more flexible than, than people maybe make it out to be. Yeah, I have an account of fact memo that I wrote a few years ago about the Fed never uh, actually reaching its target of 2% and mentioning in that that 2% was not a ceiling, it was a target, and they were consistently below that. It's a good point that Heather made uh, about PCE when you strip out uh, food and energy prices. You know, the last three months annualized was 2.2%. So the Fed is not that far away if things continue to hold up. And really, the main the two main sticking points. One is uh, energy prices at this point, which have, have, have gone back up, and the other being services, the uh, non-housing services costs. Uh, but I think the Fed is has to be happy about where it is right now, and I think is willing to talk a much more hawkish game than it necessarily thinks it might have to play over the next several months. Um, for right now, the market's clearly taking the Fed at its word, but I would not be surprised if, you know, we got maybe one more rate hike and that was it. And you could see rates coming down, um, you know, next year before the first half of the year. You know, I think the, the Fed, the last thing the Fed wants to do is say, we've got this done, you know, and have that George Bush, you know, mission accomplished moment. It's going gonna, it's gonna to talk the tough game until it's really certain when it's obviously clear that there's no going back to 4%, 5%, 6% inflation in the, in the foreseeable future. Well, when we talk about the fight against inflation, invariably we're talking about the possibility of a recession. And the opposite of a recession, economic growth is good, but it's especially good for traditionally economically disadvantaged communities. We just published a memo by Aaron Sojourner of the Upjohn Institute and Valerie Wilson of the Economic Policy Institute, who mentioned that for the first time ever, the employment population ratio for black workers exceeded that of white workers this past spring. So black workers were doing better than white workers for the first time ever. Heather, you have a recent article saying that black and Hispanic workers have been powering the economic recovery. Can you talk about that a little bit, please? Yeah, it really is an incredible story. And let me just amend, it's Black, Hispanic, and Asian. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get all three in the headline. Um, but 
you know, we were tracking this throughout most of the year and the numbers you know, certainly just seemed to get better and better. We looked at it as labor force participation. We looked at it as EPOP. We looked at it as just flat out employment levels. And when people are trying to scratch their heads saying, you know, how do we avoid this recession? What didn't people foresee? This is it. This is a big part of the story. You know, no one foresaw that there would be such a surge of particularly prime age workers and particularly women of color coming uh, you know, off the sidelines back into the labor force and even more of them coming into the labor force than we saw even in a quote boom year like 2019. Um, you know, we have about 4 million more workers than we did pre-pandemic. About half of those are Hispanic, about a quarter black, about a quarter Asian. You can also look at it as immigrant versus non. About half of this is an immigration or foreign-born worker surge. Um, and I just want to read. I love Aaron and Valerie. They have a great memo that I encourage all to read. But I also want to invoke the late, great Bill Spriggs, a Black economist, longtime economist at the AFL-CIO. And you know, he was someone who made this great point to me that really is food for thought. He said, it's not that the labor market is overheated. It's that the labor market is getting closer to how it's supposed to work in a textbook. And, you know, I may push back a little bit on the overheated part, but I do think he makes a good point that for decades, people simply assumed that, you know, black workers or the black unemployment rate or whatever statistic you want to choose could never be the same as the white rate. And that sort of has been thrown out as bollocks in the last several months. The strong recovery has also been good for business. For example, auto companies like Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis have record profits, and workers want to benefit as well. This has led to the UAW strike, but the strike isn't just about higher wages. What does the UAW want to achieve, and is it likely to do so? And in particular, Benjamin, you have a recent article about the 32-hour work week. Can you talk a little bit about that, and also perhaps about what the strikers are trying to achieve? Yeah, I mean, I think this is really interesting. You know, you have an assertive UAW that feels that it has not benefited from the resurgence of the American automaking industry. Uh, statistically speaking, they are getting a smaller share of the profits than they used to. So they're right in that sense. Uh, and they, they want their share uh, and they want it in terms of higher pay, but they're also making some other interesting demands for sort of a rebalancing of what a corporation is responsible for. They want protections for workers who may uh, lose their jobs uh, during the course of the transition to, you know, electric vehicles. They want, you know, the company to assume greater responsibility or to contribute more toward the cost of healthcare and, and toward their pensions. They're essentially seeking a new social contract with their employers. One really interesting aspect of that is uh, that the for the first time in, in more than a generation, they're pressing to shorten the work week. This was for a very long time one of the central demands of the union movement. American workers went from working six days a week to working five after decades of struggle by the union movement to press for the 40-hour week. Uh, and when that happened in the 1940s, many union leaders thought the progress would continue uh, toward a 32- or 30-hour week, uh, but it stopped there. And so we've all grown up in a world in which the 40-hour week is conventional. Uh, but the UAW is now arguing that workers should be employed for 32 hours a week, still paid for a full week of work uh, for four days of work. And this is a, a growing, this is an idea that's been gaining currency uh, in the union movement. It's been gaining currency in some foreign countries. Uh, there are experiments 
uh, in the United Kingdom uh, in recent years, uh, where employers have moved to a four-day week and found uh, that that revenue held constant and that you know workers worked harder during the time that they were at the office. Uh, and the idea is that this is a necessary rebalancing of of you know sort of your work life with other aspects of your life. Uh, and uh, I think for the union movement, it's also an effort to reinvigorate. Uh, the movement by setting goals that people are excited about. Uh, you need, if you're going to fight well, you need things to fight for. And for the union movement in recent years, it's been so much about just playing defense and trying to get, you know, the best severance packages as workers are pushed out the door and holding on to whatever they can for as long as they can. And so it's really interesting to see union leaders sort of turn around and saying, no, this is an environment in which we can dream bigger dreams. Uh, we're going to articulate some bold goals. We're going to fight for them. Uh, and we're going to try to get our members uh, excited about uh, our ability to collectively seek a larger share of the economic pie. I would uh, add that a lot of what the union is trying to do is recoup what it gave up around the Great Recession in 2007-2008. Let's not forget that you know the U.S. government had to bail out the auto industry. Uh, and the auto industry survived because of the uh, U.S. taxpayer. And now workers feel like it's their turn to get some of those, uh, you know, wages and, and benefits back. There's a two-tier wage system that I think really gnaws at the union, gnaws at any union when some people are making less than others for doing the same job. And I think they'd love to get rid of that. And I think the other trend here is the introduction of new technology and what the conversion to electric vehicles means. You know, uh, the battery plants are largely being built in the South where unions aren't very strong uh, and the electric cars need fewer parts and don't take as many workers to put together. So that is, uh, that's, uh, those are big things to fight back for. And you saw the technology issue at play in the Hollywood writer strike, uh, the same thing, trying to protect workers from very fast moving changes in the way work is done. So, the change in people's attitudes towards unions is, uh, avoid the pun, striking, I guess. President Biden joined a picket line, the first sitting president to do so, and he's always claimed to be strongly supportive of unions. So do you think this resurgence in support for unions is durable? And politically, will the UAW strike be good for the presidents? Since polls do suggest that there's popular support for the strikers or could this cause a recession that will harm the president's chances at re-election? Yeah, I mean, the, there was a Gallup poll in August that showed three out of four Americans support the UAW members. Only 19 percent support management at the automakers. Organized labor overall has uh, something like a 67 percent approval rating in the U.S. right now. That's down a little bit from a year ago, but it's sure a lot higher than the president's approval rating. So uh, no surprise that uh, Joe Biden wants to... Uh, Hitch his wagon to the to the union locomotive right now, but the deck is just so stacked against organized labor in this country. I mean, even though uh, a lot of Americans are supportive of organized labor, the the actual number of workers who are represented by a union is is an all time low, just over six percent in the in the private sector, and you know more than half the states have so called right to work laws, which which prevent uh, closed shops. The National Labor Relations Board was antagonistic to, to unions for so long. Even though we've seen a lot of organizing activity in the last couple of years, we've seen very little in the way of gains for new organizing efforts. Uh, so um, it, it's just a very difficult environment for, for unions to operate in. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. Like the idea of a union revival is is hugely overstated because there can't be a union revival. There just aren't that many unionized workers. Uh, the United States has made it incredibly difficult for new unions to be formed or for unions to add members at businesses where they don't currently represent workers. Uh, until laws are changed, there will be no revival of the union movement. And one thing that's really important to recognize is that the workers who most need the benefits of collective bargaining are the ones who are least represented by the union movement. What we are seeing is, you know, sort of the residual unions in the manufacturing sector, uh, you know, and then you've got these sort of, I don't even exactly know how to describe them, but like the writers unions or journalism is another space where we've seen a resurgence of union activity in recent years or Starbucks workers. These are almost like boutique unions or, you know, airsats unions. I don't know. They're not representing large numbers of interchangeable workers in the quest to raise wages from from the basement to the first floor, uh, which is what the union movement historically has been most necessary for. And those workers today work in the service industries. They work in home health care. They work in industries like that. Uh, and there are no unions in those industries. Uh, and there are not likely to be any unions in those industries uh, in le- in t- unless and until the United States Congress decides to allow unionization again in this country. Yeah, I mean, the president bills himself as the most pro-union president, and he has thrown some crumbs in organized labor's way. He's, you know, directed some more public spending to to go towards towards uh, unionized workers and that sort of thing. Uh, the Labor Department has tried to reinforce the 40-hour week when it comes to salaried managers at fast food places and that sort of thing. But they've made, gotten nowhere on legislation that would actually make it easier to for workers to organize. And and the Democratic Senate can't even confirm Julie Sue as the labor secretary because she's she's viewed as too pro-worker. I mean, God forbid the labor secretary be too, too pro-worker. There's a, a very strong political element to this that I think Biden is playing. There will not be a great revival of the union movement in this country. But if you look at who he's trying to appeal to, it's those white Midwestern uh, male workers who just ran away from Hillary Clinton as fast as they possibly could, so much so that they embraced Donald Trump, even though he didn't care anything about them. And uh, also the uh, black and Hispanic and Asian workers in the services industry, hotels and hospitals uh, that are, you know, represented by unions like the SEIU, which is a pretty big union. So uh, I think it's really very smart political move by by Biden to come out strongly for the UAW because he's sending a message to these key constituencies that Democrats have struggled with, you know, in recent years. Um, so there, there, there's the political side of this as well, and it's probably even more important at this point than the sweep of union history in this country. Another business-related item that's in the news is the antitrust case brought by the Federal Trade Commission and 17 states' attorneys general against Amazon. Online sales for Amazon represent about 40% of all online sales. Amazon claims that its market dominance helps consumers by getting them lower prices. But the FTC and the attorneys general say that the restraint of trade is bad for the economy. Does this case represent a shift in antitrust policy? I can jump in on that one just briefly. Uh, as someone who works for the same uh, owner as Amazon, I'm going to be a little bit guarded in what I say. But um, 
you know, look, there's clearly been a massive shift in antitrust with Lena Khan coming to the head of the FTC agency. You know, the question is, is it going to work? Um, this is a huge gamble, a bunch of these cases that are coming forward. And, you know, if this one fails, I think you actually set the antitrust movement back, you know, possibly decades in terms of uh, what's what will be achievable here? Anti and you know, antitrust is generally a, an area where the courts uh, have tended to side with corporations in the United States. Uh, we're not legal scholars on this panel, but you know, this is a very risky strategy. And you know, it's been interesting how many uh, different. I'm on the editorial board now at the Washington Post, and how many different industries have wanted to come in and specifically talk to us about FTC actions. Probably the most that any of us can remember on the editorial board in the last 40 years. Um, so the wake-up call is there, but you know it's a big, big question mark legally whether this is a good idea to this extent. We have a number of memos on this by uh, my colleagues, Dan Richards and Lynn Papel, about the evolution of antitrust policy, especially with the work of uh, the late Robert Bork and how antitrust is different for these big firms like Amazon and so on. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a sort of a narrow answer to your question, which is that the FTC is pursuing an interest in platforms. Uh, the idea being that businesses that sort of serve both that make markets that are places where buyers and sellers meet are a different category of animal than the businesses traditionally uh, subject to antitrust scrutiny, uh, a major retailer, for example, or a major manufacturer. Uh, and that this type of platform, uh, an Amazon-like entity, uh, requires a different kind of scrutiny and, and different kinds of rules, that the power that it exerts over a marketplace can't be measured simply in the prices that it delivers goods to customers, uh, but in its ability to uh, you know, limit the supply of goods, to squeeze the people who are providing those goods, uh, to dominate the marketplace in ways that are ultimately harmful for workers and consumers. Uh, and so the FTC is pursuing uh, a new kind of, of antitrust action in this case. I, I am going to disagree with Heather. I think it's a really important thing for them to do. Uh, I think, you know, if you, don't, if you don't fight these battles, you can't win them. Uh, I don't know whether or not Amazon should lose this case, but I think that uh, the way that we need to start, th there has been so little uh, litigation, so little antitrust action around uh, the new tech industry, uh, that we have very little idea of how the law can or should relate to it. And we need to begin having these cases so that we can sort that out. And so I think the importance of the Amazon case and of the Google case that is simultaneously in progress uh, are that we are finally, as a society, beginning to grapple with the question of how antitrust rules should apply to these new models of business and to these new kinds of companies. Uh, and so I think you know that is necessary and valuable work. Yeah, Dan and Lynn's memo talks about this sort of two-facing aspect of these tech companies where they're simultaneously buyers and sellers, and also why the network externalities, the bigger the, you are, the more profitable you are, the bigger you can become, why that's very important in this, in this sense as well. Finally, I'd like to turn to housing. There seems to be a crisis of affordable housing in this country that really hits young people who want to buy their first house as well as many other people who are forced out of their homes by gentrification and even people in the middle class who are looking for either a new house or to buy their first house. Each of you have written about different aspects of this recently. 
First, Larry, you had a recent article in the Boston Globe in your Trendline series about the cost of mortgage borrowing. How is that affecting home sales? Well, it's affecting home sales by pretty much freezing them up. I mean, right now, and it's been this case for a while, the housing market is a broken market. It just it just doesn't work. And if you think about it, some of the real losers, the biggest losers of the Fed's anti-inflation campaign have been home buyers, some home sellers. Yes, you know, venture capitalists can't do as many IPOs as they wanted to. They'll survive. Um, and I do have a lot of sympathy for the tech workers who are getting laid off as as the uh, the venture funding uh, market slows down. But the average homeowner, if you want to buy a house, it's, I looked at the numbers back in May and it's only gotten worse because at that point, the interest rates, you know, on a 30-year mortgage were like 6.8%. They're now 7.3%. But in the Boston area alone, according to the Fed, the percentage of median income that you needed to buy the median priced house was 47%. And that is compared to their preferable target of 30%. And in the Boston metropolitan area, it had been running at about 33% from 2014 to 2019 before the pandemic. So you can see how that affordability has just gotten way out of control. And that just won't change until interest rates come down. There's no other way to free the logjam, as far as I can see. Scott, the interest burden of borrowing that Larry's talking about is one cost, but it's not the only factor. You had a recent piece on housing affordability. What did you mention in that segment? Well, ordinarily, I mean, one thing that might give a little bit when interest rates are as high as this is, is the price might come down somewhat, you know, because obviously the, the, the monthly payment is a function of the price and the interest rate. And if the interest rate, the, the prices that were set when when mortgage rates were next to nothing, might have to typically would have to fall uh, to keep those those monthly payments affordable. But the prices haven't really come down very much because there's so little inventory. Because anybody who already owns a home doesn't want to sell and have to get a much more expensive mortgage. So there's a real dearth of homes on the market, and you've got this kind of double whammy of a very high mortgage interest rate and still elevated prices that have shown very little give. One thing this has done is create an opening for home builders to sort of be a little bit of a relief valve. And so you're seeing uh, home builders building more than, than you might expect in a 7% rate environment to take up some of that slack. And the share of first-time buyers who are buying new homes is much higher than it would typically be. Usually it's under 30% of new constructions bought by first-time buyers. Now it's north of 40%. And the home builders have gotten pretty creative in trying to create homes that are more affordable. I mean, they're not cheap. They're not, they're not, they're not easy starter homes, but they are more affordable. And, you know, they're doing that in a number of ways. They're, they're stripping out the granite countertops. They're using laminate flooring instead of hardwood. But the biggest thing they're doing is they're actually shrinking the homes a little bit. They're, they're making homes a little bit smaller, which is, I, I know it sounds un-American, but it is one way you can cut the cost. However, home builders are limited in what they can do there by restrictive zoning. Um, you know, it's still just hard to build housing in the, in, the, in the size and density that we would need to have anything like a truly affordable uh, starter home that the median income could swing. And, and until, we, until we change some of that zoning policy, it's going to be hard to change that. You said un-American. <laughs> um, 
Benjamin, you had a really interesting piece about Tokyo. Um, the supply of housing in America is a big contributing factor to affordability and access to housing. But surprisingly, this is much less of a problem in Tokyo. What do the authorities in Tokyo do to make housing more affordable there? They let people build housing. I mean, our problem in America is actually not very complicated. We have made it impossible to construct the amount of housing that the market wants in the places where people want it. You can build an affordable starter home in wide swaths of this country, but there are no jobs in those places. The places where there are jobs, places like Boston and San Francisco and New York and Washington, you can't build housing. And that's why housing is unaffordable. It's essentially become you know, a private club with a limited number of seats at the table and the price of those seats keeps going up. And that is not going to, I mean, lower interest rates would help, building smaller homes would help, but nothing is actually going to change. Nothing's actually gonna become affordable until governments make it possible uh, for developers to build the amount of housing uh, that is demanded in these places. And Tokyo has done this. Uh, it sort of stands alone among global cities and its success in maintaining affordable housing prices through the very simple expedient of getting out of the way. They, they build a lot of transportation infrastructure. Uh, it's not you know, just that they're not regulating, they're, they're creating a, a, you know, an environment in which it's possible for people to live and get around. Um, but fundamentally what they are doing is allowing developers to replace existing buildings with new bigger ones. Uh, allowing developers to make use of available land to build uh, the type of dense housing that is in demand. Uh, and, and in so doing, they're allowing those cities to grow. I mean, it's just one of the most remarkable facts about the United States, and not just the United States, Western Europe as well, is that you know throughout history, growing cities, cities that were prospering economically, grew because they attracted people uh, to those opportunities. And we have now inverted that reality. Our most prosperous cities are now the ones that are not growing. Uh, and that is just at the crux of so many of our societal problems. Uh, and and I just there's, there are a few things I, I just think are clearer than that. We need to open the floodgates and allow housing construction. Yeah, I would commend that article that you wrote. I mean, I found it really interesting. And so then I started to think, well, maybe, you know, we could use office spaces and convert them to housing. And then I read this really interesting article by Heather why that's very difficult to do. Heather, can you explain what you wrote in that article a bit, please? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the editorial board at the Washington Post has been doing a year-long series on how to revive downtowns. Uh, anybody who's been anywhere in a downtown or city urban core, if you prefer, knows how we use the word comatose. It's been mainly because the opinion editor didn't want to use the word dead. Um, but you know, it's kind of, so almost everybody's immediate thought is just what Benjamin was saying, which is let's open the floodgates and let's turn these uh, buildings, these offices into much needed housing. Um, the problem is it's really complicated to do. And we had a piece and you know, others have had good pieces that tried to visually walk people through, you know, all the challenges with plumbing or windows. You know, we, we fought for so long, 100 years ago, to insist that all bedrooms have windows. Well, now that could be a little bit of a hindrance in turning an office into a apartment building. Um, but honestly, the best visual is if you're in an office, the next time you go to one, get off the elevator and just stand there for a minute and visualize, could you put an apartment between where you're standing and wherever the office is, like wherever the windows are at the edge of the building? 
And a lot of buildings, it's, you know, it's really hard to do. You'd end up with this really kind of elongated space that just does not work well. Um, so on top of that, the other uh, thing that really surprised me, of course, we've all been talking about high interest rates as a hindrance right now. Certainly developers are not very anxious to take a jump and a try on converting a building at the interest rates where they are. Um, commercial buildings are often funded by regional banks, which obviously went through a little bit of a mini banking crisis earlier this year. They're not very eager to lend. But the other biggest problem of all is the prices are too high for a lot of these buildings. And we basically need a repricing tsunami, I've been calling it. You're starting to see a little bit of that. Buildings in Boston and San Francisco selling you know, for anywhere from a discount of 25% to almost 50% off um, the asking price. But you know, the problem is a lot of buildings in these core major metro areas, you know, were valued at over $100 million pre-pandemic or even in 2021. And now most people call you up and they say, sure, I'd love to convert that building to housing, but I'm not touching it for less than $50 million. And that's a big haircut for a lot of banks and a lot of developers and a lot of property owners to take. So, um, so keep your eye in that space when the, when the prices start to fall. Keep your eye also on the different incentives that different cities are starting to roll out to try to make this happen. But uh, here's some numbers that we just published last week, kind of hot off the press. Um, vacancy rates in most cities and the office space is 20% or more of office space is currently vacant. And that's just the stuff that's officially vacant, not like, hey, if you look around the Washington Post, we are definitely not utilizing most of our space, which is probably true for you know, anybody else listening to this. Um, so how much of this is under conversion, has been converted into um, anything new, usually housing, but it could be a theater or it could be a, you know, a hospital or a school? Um, you know, it's less than 2% of office space is, has you know, seen some sort of conversion um, right now. So um, we've got a long way to go. You, you, we need to get that number to at least 10% to really stabilize the market and to get back to anything like pre-pandemic levels. Well, as always, I really enjoyed this discussion and find it really illuminating and interesting. So thanks to all of you for joining me today. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens to housing, what happens to inflation, what happens to the soft landing, what happens to strikers. And we can talk about that again in another few months. Thanks again very much, everybody. Good with you. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.